Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all on the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. Shazam! Welcome, Job Shop Show podcast listeners. This is a different format for us today. Typically, the podcasts are done through the web using Zoom, as the shop owners are located all over the country, the ones we are talking with. But today, we are face-to-face in Nashua, New Hampshire, with Chris Sweeney of Sweeney Metal Fabricators. By the way, if you have not yet used Zoom or one of the other video chats, I encourage you to give them a try. Most are free, and it makes a difference being able to see someone rather than just hearing a voice. So Sweeney has been around since 1988, and they are a full-service sheet metal and machining shop. Chris is a second-generation owner, and today we're going to discuss his change in philosophy of lead times over the last year, workforce challenges, and some of the technology the shop has brought in-house recently. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Chris. Thanks, Jay. So we were just hanging out at Fabtech in Chicago. Thanks for coming out and being in the booth with us. You've been to a lot of the shows in the past. Mm-hmm. So what was new and exciting at this show? What caught your eye? Well, every year there's something different at Fabtech. It's a good show to go to. Um, you see all the uh, technologies that you don't even know exist really. And um, not so much looking at technology you might want to adopt right away, but knowing what's available so you know what the market is doing and uh, you know what uh, your competition might be looking at and how to implement even uh, the beginning stages of some of that technology. Did you buy anything or are you kicked gathered? A lot, kicked a lot of tires this year. A lot, yeah. a lot of tire kicking, yeah. So, But you the attendance at Fabtech has resulted in equipment buying in years before. Yeah, it's a great opportunity to go and, like I said, look at, um, you know, you can look at five or six different manufacturers at the same time. Um, it's a process that takes, you know, weeks locally if I'm going to go visit you know, a bunch of different right. shops and look at technology. So uh, it's it's great to be able to go down there for a day or two and, you know, get uh, get the nuts and bolts of what you're looking at and see what's available and um, and really get deep into you know, some technologies. It seemed like it was really busy too. The floors were buzzing, a lot of people around. The aisles were pretty crowded. It, you hear about the economy slowing down, and we're talking in November of 2019. But custom manufacturing seems to be still running full stride. They say the economy is slowing down, but I mean the the Activity is real, is real high right now. There's a lot of things going on. Um, even the customers that aren't uh, doing all the booking right now, they're, they're reporting they're very busy. They have a lot of irons in the fire and a lot going on. So the outlook is good. I mean, the next year is looking to be a, a great year again. Excellent. Well, before we dive into the meat of the show, I want to give the listener a sense of your shop. Could you give them a quick overview of Sweeney, 
where does most of your business come from? What does the shop look like if we were to walk through it, those sort of things? Okay. So we are a full service, like you said, full service sheet metal and machine shop. Um, we started in 1988 as a fab shop. Um, I started the machine shop in 1997 and we married the two together in 2003. Uh, at the time, it was a great opportunity to give our customers what we called one-stop shopping, where they could come in and get all of their fab work, all of their machine work, everything in one house. And uh, we really capitalized well on that and did great. Um, look at it today. Uh, like I said, we're 50% machining, 50% fab. Um, we always say there's an invisible line going down the middle of the building, but uh, it's, all one, it's all one company. It's all one team. Uh, but we've realized that it's a, it's a much different animal feeding the machine shop and the, and the fab shop. And uh, everyone gets along great, but they're completely different people. Um, a lot of our work comes from, I mean, we, we have about 250 active customers. So, you know, we look at, uh, you know, everything from defense work to aerospace work to consumer mm-hmm. electronics work, you name it. We, we run the gamut of everything. Um, the way we try to keep on top of all that is like going to FabTech is we like to uh, adopt new technology as, as it comes about, as we can do it. Um, we like to stay on top of that curve. Uh, the truth of it is when we bring in the new piece of equipment, it's usually outdated a month after we get it. It's something bigger, right. something bigger and better is already available. So uh, right. it's, it's impossible to stay on top of it, but we try to do the best we can. Is most of your business within the 50, mile radius of the shop or do you do business other, in other places in the country? We do business around the, around the country and around the world. But, uh, yeah, the majority of our business is that 100-mile radius, and that's, uh, that's, uh, that's a radius I'm really working hard to bump out and to, uh, and to break out of that. So customers who are not within that radius, how do they find you? How do you sell to them, market to them? Uh, we don't actively market to them right now. That's something we're working on. Um, really, it's, it's web traffic that leads them to us. Um, sometimes I... I honestly couldn't tell you why we get an order from someone in California, but um, but you think the website is a big part of that? Yes, you have is. a pretty good website. Yeah, the, the web the web traffic is is big. That's a that's a big driver for us. Um, it's something that I know that we can that we can beat a little harder and get more work out of, uh, but we haven't really tapped into that yet. Great. So a theme I want to explore with you is something that I've seen at Sweeney is your willingness to change. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about that in a few different ways today. So you had mentioned that there's seven dangerous words. Do you recall that? And can you share what those seven words are? They're not dangerous. They're expensive. We've always done it that way. Those are the most expensive words in business because if you don't, if you're not willing to adapt change and, uh, and, and adopt what's new, you're going to die. Innovate or die. That's, that's, that's kind of our, our tagline. So how did that become a core outlook for you? Well, um, growing up in this business, literally, um, I, I saw how things went. Um, I knew when my father started the business in 1988, he was running the business the way he had always seen the businesses be run. He was, you know, he was a general manager of a shop before you know, he started this business. Mm-hmm. Um, he was dealing with customers the same way he had always dealt with them, and that worked well. I mean, he did very well doing that. Um, but that status quo and that relying on your name and your, and your principles of your, of your shop worked very, very well into the 2000s. But when we saw a downturn in 2007, 2008, mm-hmm. we had no option but to, but to adapt new ways and uh, new tactics to, to stay alive. Uh, we stayed very busy in those times, uh, and that's because we were willing to adapt. We went from a high production shop down to uh, you know, a production job uh, in 2000 was 
500 to 1,000 units and we're getting orders weekly, right. know, maybe monthly. Uh, we changed quickly to doing you know, 50-piece runs. It was, was a big production job. Hmm. Um, we weren't really set up to do that, but we had the equipment and the people that were able to do it. So we learned to, to adapt to do that. Were there specific things that you did in that adaptation that may st- still allowed you to be profitable doing 50 pieces as opposed to 500 to 1,000? Uh, I think the makeup of the shop was a big help. You know, we've never employed what we call bus- button pushers. We always have mechanics and, and machinists on, on staff. Um, so the ability to, to change that diet of work from, like I said, the production work where we have overpaid people running you know, you know mm-hmm. production equipment to taking those people who are overpaid and actually utilizing for what they can actually do. So a lot of that was a perfect storm for us, but um, it, we definitely were able to thrive through that. How do you keep your employees with that mindset so that it's embedded in your culture that things have to change things that you give them the permission to change and try things it's challenging i mean it's you get a long-time employee who's been on this ride for a long time and, and they they're used to their job they're used to the nine to five whatever it is they, they know what they have to do to get their job done mm-hmm. and when you change that up um you know it's challenging most of the times they they welcome it uh, they don't fight it too often um the most important thing is really driving home the fact that the, the change that we implement is not for a healthier bottom line necessarily it's it's for know happier employees is for a better better product um if everyone's happy and doing a great job what they do the customer's happy because they can see it in the work right and that's something at rapid where i was always positioned the change is that this is for the customer right and if the customer's happy then we all have jobs. Right. If the customer's happy, that the bottom line is going to look good. Right. It's, it's you know, obviously, you know, I, I look at the bottom line and, and a healthy number there is important, but um, there's, there's a lot more to it than just looking at a balance sheet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you personally have adapted, changed in regards to lead times over the last year oh, yeah. or so. Can you tell that story which you had shared with Jason Ray. Yeah, so I mean, um, I wrote a blog post about, I don't know, maybe two years ago about why we—that's probably a little longer than two years, maybe three years ago—why we don't charge expedite fees and why we don't do rush orders. Um, and the mentality has always been, you know, if a customer comes up to me and says, you know, I need these parts in four weeks, mm-hmm. okay, we can we'll book the parts in. If they come back and say, what's going to cost you them in two weeks? The answer is always, well, it's the same price. If I can ship them earlier, I'll ship them earlier to you. Um, you know, that, that was, it, it always seemed to me that just charging more money to ship it earlier was kind of a hold, holding the customer hostage and saying, you give me money, I'll give you your parts. Mm-hmm. And we never wanted to have that mentality. And customers really liked the fact that you know, we didn't do that. You know, flash forward to a couple of years ago where, you know, I start, started talking with Jason and, and, and about expedite fees and how I, I still fought it a bit saying, I, I don't want to charge expedite fees. But uh, the truth of the matter was, um, Everyone around me is charging expedite fees, and they're doing quick turns. Mm-hmm. Um, we had always said we're not a quick turn shop, uh, but uh, we looked into, you know, what would it take to become a quick turn shop and um, kind of uh, bridge that gap between, you know, a six-week lead time and uh, an instant part. Um, you know, you, you're drawing some lines between us and Rapid, and, you know, Rapid is a little different where Rapid's got 24-hour turns, 72-hour turns. Mm-hmm. 
but we still don't have that. We don't offer that. Uh, we offer, you know, expedited turns, uh, but it's based on each part that we look at. You know, we'll look at a part and we'll say, uh, you know, we can do this in our normal four to six week turn, or you can expedite it. And the way we've, a- we've been able to capture that is by basically pushing out our lead times for, for everybody. Uh, we pushed out our lead times, so we build a buffer mm-hmm. up front. So, uh, you know, if you, if you look at our backlog, if we don't have a lot of quick turn work booked, our backlog looks a little empty for the next couple of weeks, but that's done on purpose. That's done so that we have the availability right. to do that quick turn. And it come, the expedite fee comes in because that comes at a cost. I mean, there's, you know, there's overtime costs. There's, you know, I'm not buying material for stock. I'm buying material per the job. I'm plating parts per that part where I'm not encompassing all these things into the lot charges or, you know, stock buys. So, I think that's important that you have deliberately now built flex into your schedule. There's empty spots that you are anticipating will be filled by customers who have an urgent need for parts. Well, I mean, the truth of it is, you know, we'd be booking work in for four to six week delivery and, you know, we'll have a larger customer who, you know, they'll, they'll take the work in four to six weeks, but in reality, they don't need it for six to 10 months. Right. And they don't care if they get it early. They don't care if they get it on time, but, but they just need to get the parts in when they need them. So, you know, we're, we're booking the six to 10 month work and we're getting it out in four weeks, realizing that, you know, we're leaving time on the table, not necessarily money on the table, but time on the table. We're saying we don't need to work on that project right now. We can push that out a month. Mm-hmm. We've just opened up a month of our schedule. I think a lot of shops struggle with the, and I want to go back to that, those gaps in the schedule and what you've done is you went from your standard four week to a six to eight week lead time, which as you said, the customers are good with that, right. but that creates spaces in the schedule so that the customers who have urgent needs, now there are spots to put it into the schedule in the shop without disrupting the other orders. Whereas if you had the four week continued with the four week standard lead time, then trying to help a customer creates chaos in the shop. Right. Well, that I mean, schedule's full. It's a dynamic schedule. So right. I mean, years ago, a customer calls up and says, I need this part right away. We look for holes in the schedule. Okay. Let, let me take a look at my schedule and see when we can work right. it in. And, that, and that's not just, that's not just lip service. We're actually looking to see how right. can we get this in without disrupting the shop. Uh, so instead of looking for those holes in production, we decided to build those holes in production, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we call them production holds or queue times. You know, we're going to say, it's, this part's going to get to this, this operation, and it's going to sit for three days before we, op- before we run that operation. Um, that's not because we don't want anything to do. It's because we want to make sure that we, we have three days of time for that operation built in. Right. And the worst case is if those jobs don't come in, you deliver We deliver production. early. Right. Right. I also think that when you offer expedite fees for shorter lead times to the customer, it empowers them. It allows them to make the decision, is this urgent enough that I am willing to pay more money for it? Right. Or can I make adjustments in my own schedule to keep the price down and take a longer lead time, or, or I guess I shouldn't even say a longer lead time, but a standard lead time. Well, it makes them ask the question, you know, if they say they need it in two weeks, it makes them answer the question for themselves, do they really need it in two weeks? Mm-hmm. Every shop owner has seen a customer who's come in and said, hey, we need this in two weeks. And then you have a meeting with them three weeks later and you go in there and the parts are still sitting in, in 
receiving, haven't, haven't moved a, a foot. Yeah. Um, it happens time and time again. And, you know, that's not a problem. We delivered it. We got paid for it. We're not upset about that, obviously. But um, these cry wolf scenarios happen a lot. And, uh, you know, it really exactly. it, it gives them the chance to really take stock and do I need this in two weeks? Am I going to pay extra hats in two weeks or do, do I need or can I wait the four to six weeks that you know, it's really going to take to get this part done? Mm-hmm. The reason I implemented expedite fees at Rapid, I don't know if I've told the story before, but way back in the early days, I did all the quoting myself mm-hmm. and we had a customer who placed an order and the shop wasn't busy at the time. We had a standard lead time of seven business days for sheet metal parts. And he asked if he could get the parts, say in three business days, we weren't super busy. So sure. We made it happen for Mm -hmm. him. And like you said, we tried to help the customer out, did him a favor. He was thrilled, thanked us. And let's say a month later, two months later, whatever it was, the shop was now busy. We were actually really busy. Right. And the customer came back and we quoted our standard seven business day lead time. And he said, oh, I really need the parts in three days. Can I get those parts in three days? And I said, no, we, we, we can't do that for you. We, it will create chaos in the shop. Um, sorry, it's the seven business days. And he got really upset <laughs> and it made me sit back and say, wow, I did someone a favor. And now that is the expectation that that's the standard for right. it, whether we're busy or not. So that was the start of us thinking about charging expedite fees to really make the customer sit back and say, is the value of the faster delivery worth the extra money that I'm going to have to pay? Yeah, I mean, we're in an on-demand society, and people don't want to wait six to eight weeks for a part. If they want it tomorrow, they want to, what's it going to cost to get it tomorrow? They don't want to be told, you, know, you need to wait. Right, right, right. And we give them that option. We have what we call it the Walmart customers, customers that call up and just think that we've got their parts sitting on the shelf ready to ship. You know, can you ship these out tonight? We, we have the Walmart customers? Yeah, that's what we call them, yeah. Sure. You know, they, they just assume that everything's, you know, sitting in the aisle ready to go. Their custom parts are ready to ship out tomorrow if we want to ship them tomorrow. Um you know, that's obviously not the case in the custom world. Everything right. is custom made. And, you know, when you, when you send the order and that's when we start looking at it and that's when we start to make it, um, it it's, that's not going to change, but we've really, the expedite fees have really, uh, kind of put that into perspective for the customers. Yeah. So another way that you've changed is the technology that you have brought in house. Mm-hmm. For example, in sheet metal, you used to just have punch presses, right? But now you have a laser. Mm-hmm. So why did you decide to bring a laser in-house? So the, the laser discussion, honestly, has been going on for probably about 10 years for us. Uh, it was, you know, when do we adapt to a laser? When do we, you know, when do we need that? And it's always been based on uh, the diet of work we have and, you know, how much laser, laser work we're subbing out to the laser shops. And, uh, you know, it was, um, if you look at it that way, it really never justified a laser. It, mm-hmm. um, but what, what I was looking at a couple of years ago was, well, maybe we don't need to justify a laser. Maybe we need to bring on that technology and, and find a way to make sure that we can excel at it. Um, you know, we, we have some pretty robust punching capabilities, but the truth of the fact is the laser allows us to cut anything. Um, right. As opposed to punching where we got hard tooling costs and you know, maintenance costs on that. 
Um, the laser doesn't care what it is. It's a big torch. It's going to cut through a quarter inch or whatever we want to cut through, and it doesn't need special tooling, and it doesn't need uh, a, a lot of uh, secondary processing either. Um, couple that and couple the fact that, you know, the technology has really come down in cost. Ten years ago, we're looking at, you know, one, two million dollars of lasers for right. what we're doing now. We're, now we can look at that for under half a million dollars. Which if, laser did you buy? We have an IPG uh, laser cube. And what's the footprint of that? 48 by 48. It's a three kilowatt laser. Two kilowatt. And how thick can you cut in aluminum in that? Yeah, we can cut aluminum and cut steel, copper, stainless, uh, quarter inch, no problem. I remember that was always with the CO2 lasers. I assume the IPG is a fiber. It's fiber, yes. Right. The copper, any reflective material would potentially blow up. Polished aluminum's copper, yeah. Yeah. The the fiber laser goes right through it, no problem. Yeah, those are great. It actually cuts copper really nicely. So another area that you're exploring now is machine monitoring. Mm -hmm. And tell me a little bit about what you're doing there and how you're going about that. Well, we've really just scratched the surface of it. I mean, we've really just started to get uh, involved with that. And, um, you know, these new machines, there's thousands of data streams coming out of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And the question is, you know, what do we do with that data? Um, You know, we're looking at the data coming out of it. And uh, like I said, there's there's more data than you know what to do with. It's how do you you put that into something you can quantify and and measure? Um, So right now we're looking at it as, as green light time. You know, how much time are machines running? How do you measure that? Is that sort of spindle when the spindle is spinning? Is that green or does that include setup? How do you, how does that? Well, since a lot of our parts have, you know, extensive setups on them, we look at it as the setup switch. Uh, okay. When is the machine setup mode and when is it in run mode? Okay. Um, when it's in run mode, we want to see, you know, high green light time. Mm-hmm. When the machine's in run mode, if we're seeing, you know, 70 to 80% green light time, that's, that's decent. Um, if we're seeing it below 50, we know there's something going on, whether it's, you know, is it, we have two op- one operator running two machines and it's not efficient. You know, what, what's, the okay. re- what's the reason for the downtime during, so the, during operations? So th- that's a great point. So the data that's collected tells you that rather than subjectively, I think the operator is able to handle two machines. Now you can say, no, the machine's only up 50% during run time because he's just not able to switch the parts out fast right. it, it just brings up the question. You go up to the machine operator and say, Jim, why isn't this machine running? Right. Well, uh, it's there's, there's, there's usually <laughs> it's as simple as that. There's usually a good answer. It's, yeah. uh, well, it's because I'm running this machine. I can't keep up with the two at the same time. And that you can't find a solution if you don't know the problem. Right. Um, rarely is the answer because I didn't want to push the start button. <laughs> it's usually, there's usually right. a reason behind it. Right. Why did you decide to start looking at machine monitoring? Because we're, we're trying to be in the forefront of technology, and, and we're, we're adapting this technology. It's in our building. The data is there. Um, why not tap into the data that, that we're being given? Why not look at it and, and see what we can do with it? Uh, worst case scenario, we look at it and say, this is useless. But the data that we've seen, it, it's very helpful. One of the things I'm always curious about is how do shop owners find out about new technology? So machine monitoring, was it, it became something that was more and more important to you? Was it articles you read? Was it the Fabtech and other shows? Well, how did you discover that machine monitoring was even available and then gather the information and which... 
So it, it's been around for a while. It's not new technology. Um, it's been something that's been shown to me time and time again over the past five, six, seven years. When you say shown, you know, whether it's at a, a Fabtech show or okay. you see something online and you, and you get a cold call from somebody, um, you, you see different, different avenues of, of uh, what much larger shops are using this data for. And that really never, never resonated with me because you're, you're talking about a shop that's got, you know, 500 employees and, you know, mm-hmm. each employee's got their own machine and then they're running the same product over and over again and they can measure downtime by, you know, by the minute. Um, you know, I'm looking at, I'm a job shop. So, you know, there's downtime built into a schedule. We know that a machine is not going to run eight hours a day. We right. know that there's setup involved and there's going to be inspection time involved and the machine's not going to run eight hours. So, you know, when I was looking at these other other companies that, that do this uh, this data, they pull this data out of the machines. Uh, it never really resonated with me as something that was useful. Mm-hmm. Um, I could get more just by standing out there and watching a machine for an hour and, and <laughs> than, <laughs> right. I, than I could sitting, right, right. sitting at this, uh, sitting at my computer in my office looking at the screen. Um, we started working with a local company, Datanomics, um, and you know, the, the technology they were offering was, was more customizable, more, you know, we, hey, we have these data streams. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you want to do with them? You know, what do you want to look at? How do you want to use it? And that, uh, you know, realizing that is customizable and not just someone showing me a report card of a machine saying, you know, your machines aren't running efficiently. Um, that from a business owner standpoint, you know, we're not looking at machine efficiency. Although we do keep, take that into consideration, we're looking at bottom line. Mm-hmm. We're looking at are we profitable? Um, now when we drill down to machine efficiency and we see if we're running efficiently, that's just icing on the cake. And you know, we're trying to trying to increase our profits, obviously, um, increase our revenue, uh, and increase our efficiencies within the shop. So Datanomics is a local company mm-hmm. within probably five miles of your shop. Mm-hmm. How did you become aware that they existed? I'm really trying to drill into the how do you find new technology, find who the right players are? So I... I I'm, I'm trying to figure exactly how that how that happened, and I, I knew a colleague that was using Datanomics, but I didn't know it was Datanomics, um, much bigger so, shop. So you knew that they were using machine monitoring, right? Software. Right. Okay. Um, larger shop, so that was still sitting with me, saying, "Well, that's something he needs to do, but that's not, nothing that's going to really work for me." And you know, I, I think it was a cold call. I think I got a, maybe a LinkedIn invite or, or or something. It was a cold call from Datanomics, and uh, okay. for whatever reason, I said, "Oh, I'll check it out." Uh, and, uh, you know, they came in, they showed me their product. Um, they explained to me how it was a customizable product, how they're going to pull all, so old, dozens old, of data streams. Old-fashioned sales. Old-fashioned sales, yeah. On their part. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you also are using, now I'm going to switch to another technology you brought in-house, the 3i Ben. Mm-hmm. And is that programming? That's press break programming. Correct. Is that at the machine or is it offline or both? So that's offline. Why offline? Why do you think, because it's always been you program the press break at the press break. Why right. are you looking at offline? Well, we weren't actually looking directly at 3i Bend. Uh, the reason we got 3i Bend is because we recently upgraded one of our uh, brakes, mm-hmm. the, the Amada HC1003 ATC, uh, which is an automatic tool changing machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, the be- beauty of this machine is it takes a, an hour setup and, and cuts it down to about a minute and a half. Um, Wait, say that again? It takes an hour setup time and cuts it down to a minute and a half. And how does it do that? So the machine itself is is an advanced press break. 
and it has an automatic tool changer on the side that holds all of the punches and dies for everything we're going to do. So is that similar to a CNC machining center in that it has a tool carousel of, say, 44 tools and yep. the same way you have your press brake tooling in, in a uh, probably not a carousel, but... Right. The, the difference is with a machining center, you've got 44 tools, but you're swapping out those tools for every job. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might have some standard tools, you know, maybe tools one through 10 are your standard tools, but every other drill size, tap size, you're changing those out for every job. Um, this brake... We, we load the tools in. The, the intention is never to take the tools out. It's to okay. keep the same tools in at all times. Um, when we're quoting work on a conventional press break, you know, if a part's got five bends and we're making 10 pieces, you can pretty much assume we're going to set that up five times. We're going right. to bend one right, bend right. five times, yep. and then sec- bend two, bend three, bend four, bend five. Um, this machine for five pieces, we're going to set it up for one setup. So when you bend one, two, three, four, five bends, you know the part's good. You've got the complete part per the print, and you can check the part. Uh, the technology machine also uh, is checking those bends as you're running it. So you're not running the first bend, checking it, adjusting the machine. Uh, with this machine, you run the first bend. It brings the bend up. It checks the bend. If it's not where it needs to be, it adjusts the machine right there on the spot. Bend comes up perfect every time. That's really slick. So when we're when we're quoting work with the conventional forming, you know, we usually quote about fifteen minutes setup time per bend. Right. So if you've got a five bend job, that's an hour and fifteen minutes of, yep. of setup time just that job. And and it's a more advanced person right. setting up. Right. The maximum setup time on the HG machine is about a minute and a half. If wow. you have a full tool change, which means you're taking out ten feet of tooling and putting ten feet of tooling in, right. that's five minutes. I'm going to come over and take a look at that. That's not something that we used at Rapid, and setup time was typically setup time at Rapid for these quick-turn sheet metal parts was more than the actual runtime, and it probably is for you yeah, too. right, right. Um, and the biggest reason we adopted that technology is, you know, our, our brake mechanics have been doing what they've been doing for 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, the age of the workforce is a, big, is a big concern for us, and as these guys start to, you know, start to retire, phase themselves out, um, the replacements are very difficult to find. Um, the, the Let me put you on pause on the workforce because okay. I want to come back to that. We'll that's, circle back uh, around. Yeah. But I want to get into more detail on the 3i bend. Okay. So did you take a press break setup person, a, a sheet metal mechanic, and did they, are they the ones doing the offline programming? How, how is that done? How is that integrated into your process now? So the first thing that I noticed with 3i Bend, and I'll get back to you know, who's running it, but uh, the um, when we get a solid model from a customer for a sheet metal part, a lot of times it's not drawn as a sheet metal part. It's drawn as an a extruded feature. So it's almost like a machine box, if, mm-hmm. you, if you will. Uh, it doesn't have breaks for the corners where we have to form it up. It doesn't flatten it out well. So one job of my engineers would be to take that solid model and mm-hmm. turn it into a sheet metal part. Right. So the first thing it is, I talked to I talked to one of my engineers. Said, "How long does that take you when you get a simple part? Let's say it's a you know, it's a five sided box, open box." I said, "When they when it gets designed as a solid part, how long does that take you?" He says, "Oh, it might take me about you know fifteen to twenty minutes to you know turn it into a sheet metal part, and it's easy to flatten it out and, and program it." Well, the three I bend, what it's going to do is it's going to pull in that solid model and you're going to indicate the faces that are, that are sheet metal faces. Mm-hmm. And within a couple of minutes, you've got your flat, you get your flattened part already. And it's got your bend deductions all set up in there. Huh. It's got everything, it's got your bend reliefs in there. So instead of redesigning the part, taking your, taking your part, flattening it out, 
adding your bend reliefs. 3i bend is doing that for you. So now instead of the original mentality was we're going to flatten out the part, then put it into 3i bend, we start in 3i bend, take the solid model and flatten it out. And that's what we use to program our punch presses. So it doesn't matter whether it's designed for sheet metal or not, the software gets you to the starting gate much faster. It'll flatten out the part and it's going to find a tooling solution based on the tooling library that we have, not off every tool that's available. But we load all the tools that we have for not only the HG, but also for our old our older RG machines. We load all of our tooling in. Okay. So even though the, the software can't program the older machines, the software can come up with a bending solution for the older machines. We've been running the RG series Amadas for 30 years. So right. we have 30 years of the tooling. Right. Um, we have a lot of tooling for the, R, for the RG machines. So if we have a difficult part to bend and the new machine, the HG, cannot come up with a bending solution, my engineer can then put it into a different machine. Right. Even though we can't program that machine, but we can find the bending solution. And at the very least, we can say to the operator of that machine, you can bend it using these tools right. and this setup. This sounds like a huge time savings. It's a big time savings. How much... So the it's an HG series from Amada. Correct. What's the bed length? Ten feet, hundred and ten tons. So you got a you got a ten foot, hundred ten tons. With the press brake and the software all in, what was the cost? Uh, one of the big costs associated with the machine is the tooling. The tooling is not inexpensive, right? Of course. But the point is, it's a one time buy. Uh, all in, we're it's about a half million dollar investment. Half million dollars, but and. Just for listeners who don't buy press brakes and tooling on a regular basis, what would a RG style press brake so equivalent I, be? So the HG one thousand three you can buy as a standalone machine. Yep. Um, and just to put it in, to put it into perspective, I put about one hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of tooling into this new machine. Mm-hmm. I could have bought a new brake for less than that. Okay. <laughs> so that's. <laughs> There, there, there's a lot of savings to be had here. It's, it's, it's obviously a big time saver for us, and there's, you know, I'm going all in on it. The point is, you know, we need to adopt the new technology. Beyond the time savings, what, which are very concrete, what intangibles have you seen? Other unexpected positive benefits from bringing the technology in house. One of the big benefits that we were looking at is, and I know you want to you want to put off personnel till later, but uh, it's it's training. Okay. Um, this machine is going to allow us to have someone up and running, uh, someone with minimal bending experience, if any. Uh, we can have them running this machine in days, as opposed to you know having someone trained for weeks, months, and years to to get to a, a starting point. Okay. Um, it's a big benefit for us. You know, we've had you know five people in our shop trained to run this machine. And only two of them were trained by Amada. Uh, the other three were trained internally by, by our sure. people. How about from a quality standpoint or from a customer standpoint? You, is it noticeable from the customers? Or? So there's, there's, two, there's two big benefits we've seen from it. Um, one is the, the ease of setup of the machine uh, literally allows you to have an operator running, a, we'll say, a 50-piece job, and they're halfway through it. Um, mm-hmm. Down the, down the line, we've had a problem with another part. We need to remake a part. Mm-hmm. We can go back to the laser, cut a part, go to the brake operator and say, I need you to stop doing what you're doing and run this part. So you have got a minute and a half to change your tools. Okay. It takes maybe five minutes to 
bend the new part. Right. A minute and a half to get back to your old job again. In under 10 minutes, you've made another part. So I don't think that can be overstated in how valuable that is because as any shop owner listening knows, there are are always remakes in the shop as much as you don't want them to be as much as you put in process to try to prevent remakes. They happen. Well, what, what this has allowed us to do is, you know, to eliminate, I hate remakes. I hate remakes. Every, every shop owner does. I hate overruns. I hate when we have a hundred piece order and the job ships out the door and I'm looking at five pieces sitting there complete five pieces that we bought material for, we ran through the shop, we might have finished, and they're all done, ready to go. Uh, we can't always sell those to customers. Right. What this technology allows us to do is take a, a, a high setup operation like forming mm-hmm. and knock that down to, instead of making 10 extra pieces, we're going to make one or two. And if we lose too many, we run more in a laser, and gotcha. we, we get them back into, into forming right and away. And so this is where the laser comes in, because a punch press, again, is going to be much Same. more difficult, or excuse me, Time, Long, consuming, time, time consuming, consuming to right. set up, right. whereas the laser, you just throw the sheet on, change the program, and boom, you've right. got another blank. Yeah, same. If you've got to change 10 tools, it's, that's 10 tools. You're not going to break in your setup to do that. Um, if, you have a, if you have a 10-foot break and set up for five bends, mm-hmm. and it's an old manual-style break, you're not breaking into that setup for anything. You know, you, you've got hours of setup in that to get that machine running like that. You're not going to break into it to do one part. Right. This technology allows us to break into it for anything. So what I'm hearing is a lot more flexibility in your shop. A lot of flexibility, yeah. And that probably culminates with the customers being happier. Oh, yeah. It's all about customer experience. Yes, yes. So before we get to the workforce, (laughs) another technology you brought in is some automated and advanced quoting and estimating software. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So we're using and working paperless parts, working uh, pretty closely with them. Um, it really started out as um, actually started out years ago uh, when, when rapid, when rapid was just rapid before protolabs came around, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we all do our little research and we go online and we look at Rapid's website and they say, Hey, they have this tool that you can actually just, upload a part and get a price. And that, that's amazing. How do they do that? And you try to figure it out. And you know, what we had done is we had contacted SolidWorks to find out if that was something SolidWorks added on, if that was something they offered and they didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until years later, I, I learned that it was, it was a rapid proprietary process that they had invented. Um, but when I got involved with Payless Parts, um, you know, the, the thought process of uh, being able to automate my, my quoting mm-hmm. uh, was very intriguing. And, uh, it's funny because it, it's, really, it's really changed in the couple of years I've been working with Paperless of, of what I think Paperless is going to do for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, big, the big sell to me up front was uh, it's, it's automated. It's not going to miss processes. Mm-hmm. Whereas, uh, you know, like, like you know, you said you did all the quoting in Rapid early, early on. Right. You know, if you're going to quote 100 parts in a day, 90 of them are missing something. It's just part of the game. You know right. you're missing things and you and your your overhead has to cover for that. Um, so I was looking at paperless as at least a tool to to not miss anything. Mm-hmm. Um, since working with them, it really has evolved into a lot more than that. Um, it's it it's allows me to uh, really increase my quote throughput. Um, 
before paperless, our win rate for quotes is at 44%. And before talking to paperless, I knew I wanted to actually lower that rate. I didn't want to win 44%. Oh, really? Yeah. I wanted to win a smaller percentage, but I wanted to be quoting a lot more parts. Sure. Um, you know, if, we quote, if you quote a million parts and you're getting 44%, that's great. Uh, I'm sorry, a million dollars of the parts, you get 44%. That's great. But if you're quoting 10 million and getting 10%, that's right. great too. It just allows us to kind of not uh, so. So your throughput. Why is that higher using this software? Um, it's higher just because, for one, you're allowed to spend a little less attention to detail because you have the automation that's going to interrogate the part mm-hmm. and catch everything, um, and allows you to put much more uh, effort into. I'm sorry. It allows you to uh, quote more parts in a lot less time. So when I have a, a package from a customer that's, you know, ten parts, four different quantities each, I'm not manually looking at all ten parts, going through each one, seeing what each one needs, and be able to put them into paperless, and within ten or fifteen minutes have an accurate price that I can go and double check and make sure everything looks good and send it off to the customer. Move on to the next one. Move on to the next one. That's that's all about, you know, how many quotes can we put out in a day how many parts can we quote in an hour and paperless really increases that number. So the intention is to quote a lot more parts without adding more people to quote parts. That, that is the intention. It's also the intention is to get to a, the point where I have a lesser, lesser caliber person quoting these parts. Uh, it's not going to be really, it's not going to be at the point where I have, you know, the equivalent of an intern quoting parts and just, you know, just pushing data through paperless but to be able to get the majority of the quoting done and then have someone like myself looking over the quotes, making sure it's... it's so, a, how, so how does that change? Did you have a more skilled person doing more aspects of estimating before? Or how is that evolving in your shop? Well, a lot of the parts would involve you know, discussions with engineering. I mean, we're actually adding, adding, oh. va- adding value to a part before we even have an order. Uh, so we would look at a job, look at a job package and decide, you know, how much time do we want to put at this? Mm-hmm. How much effort do we want to put into this? Is it, is it for a repeat customer? Is it for a new customer? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it a, do we have high, you know, do we have a high possibility of winning this work? Um, that would depend on how much time and effort we're going to put into a quote. So we get a package from a, a, a brand new customer and, you know, we're talking to sales and trying to decide, you know, what are the chances of winning this? Is it, is it new work? Are they just trying to find a new price? Um, and that's where we put our effort. So we go into engineering. Uh, right. We're, we're putting these through, through CAD to see, you know, taking the, part, taking the assemblies apart, taking parts apart, looking at them, flattening and making sure that we have all the right tooling. That's all time that we're not billing. You know, mm-hmm. Every shop owner would love to say, I'd love to bill for quoting. <laughs> every, every one of them. I've never met one that doesn't. I've never you. found a customer who will pay for I've a quote. Not, I have not found one yet, but... It's it's part of the business. It's part right. of it. I mean, if you'd want to quantify the time you spend quoting, I mean, good luck. And now it's simpler. You don't have to put all that effort in. The effort's not going to go away. There's always going to be there's there's a cost associated with every aspect of running a business, as you know. Um, there's still going to be cost and value added to quoting, but by by lowering that lowering that upfront cost before you even win a job, it's huge. It's huge to allow you to, to quote more work, look at more work. Uh, the more work you quote, the more work you get to see. It's right. It's tough to contact a customer and say, hey, I'd like to look at some more of your work. And they say, oh, hey, you got two days of quoting. You haven't come back to me yet. 
that's a very real point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, you wanted to talk about workforce. So let's talk about workforce. So Chris, you've had, like many shops, workforce challenges. How have you had to change over the years? Change. It's an, it's or, a, talk about workforce in general. What's, what's going on there? Okay. Um, so like I said earlier, you know, the, the business was always built off status quo. Uh, we were, our sales were based off our good name, our good reputation, mm-hmm. and we had to adapt to that. The workforce is always the same as well, where the you know, New Hampshire was just was teeming with, with brake mechanics and, and machinists and people to hire. And it was always just a matter of, you know, you put the word out in the street, you're looking for somebody, and you get 10 applicants, qualified applicants to come to look for the job. Um, you know, that, all, that all really started to change for me probably about 2000. Um, there was a, a definite skills gap that we were seeing where um, we had a lot of people, uh, you know, getting old in the, in the workforce and trying to re- not to replace them, but to add to a workforce and add more people on. Uh, we were getting a lot of um, young people who had, uh, had kind of seen their, their fathers go through manufacturing when they were growing up and they wanted mm-hmm. to fall in their footsteps. And, um, you know, through the nineties, you know, we were really seeing a big, you know, push through, uh, Know, people going into computer science degrees and CAD, and they're coming out of school with these these great educations, but no practical knowledge. Uh, they had never been in the shop. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got a they've got a four year education, uh, and they don't they they don't have the basics of of the job. Um, you know, you back that up into you know back in the eighties when they're getting the same types of education, maybe not computer science degrees in the eighties, but they're still getting manufacturing educations. Um, that include a lot of internships going through school. So you you come out of school, you've got some real world internship experience, you've got some education under your belt, and you can get a good job. Well, in 2000, we were getting the same type of students coming out, but they didn't have any internship experience. They didn't have any hands-on experience. Um, they just had that education that they had, and they were trying to uh, you know get, start a career based on that. Um, short of doing anything else, we were hiring a lot of these people, but they they didn't have the skills necessary to do the job. Uh, they were demanding more and more money to do uh, the jobs that people were making less money had been doing it for 20 years. We're doing, mm-hmm. um, and it just, it wasn't a feasible solution for us. Uh, we've always tried to you know, stay away from automating tasks, but uh, you know, we're, we're really forced to start looking at some of that to, you know, get some automation because the workforce challenges haven't gone away. I think they're going to get better. I know there's a lot of gloom and doom in New Hampshire about it, but I think they're going to get better because there is a big push towards trades right now. Um, I don't know about around the, around the country, but I know at least in New Hampshire. Where, uh, where are you seeing the trades being learned in New Hampshire? Trades being learned in New Hampshire? Uh, hands-on is the, is, the best, is the best approach, I think. Um, we've worked with schools. We've worked with other companies. Um, we're not really big enough of a company to have a, a full-blown internship program, but we've definitely, we've definitely entertained it in the past and, uh, you know, we probably will be entertaining it again. Um, but the, uh, the most valuable candidates that come in, they're, they're willing to work. They're willing to, you know, sit mm-hmm. down and, and, and start a job, learn a trade on the, on the job, um, put in the time and the effort to, to, to learn what they're doing. Um, I never had any manufacturing education. Uh, I, you well, know, you grew up. On I grew shop up. Floor. I grew up on the shop floor, but you know, I never, I never became a, uh, you know, a manufacturing engineer or anything that I might have wanted to do. But, uh, um, you know, I, I gained a lot of knowledge, obviously, in you know my twenty-five years doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, you know, 
I, I, I gain that knowledge on the floor. And that's, right. it's not because I am a manufacturing whiz and I know what I'm doing. It's because I wanted to do it. I wanted to put in the effort. And uh, selling that message to you know, the young people that want to learn this today is big. Um, you know, if they realize that they can make a career out of this, it's, you know, it's going to go a long way. Yeah. I remember one young man we hired out of Nashua Community College in machining, and he was 21, 22, maybe, when we hired him. And he was just so gung-ho. He had some background because of that hands-on education. But he also just wanted to learn. And I think he made close to 60,000 within three years Mm -hmm. of graduating from the tech school. Right. Yeah. And so those opportunities exist for people. Oh, and you know, I, I don't like to knock the tech schools because they're, they're trying their their best to. to It's more on the machining side than the sheet metal side at this point. Sheet metal is a tough one. Yeah. That's that's a tough one. That's um, it's people say it's a dying trade. It's, you know, that, that's why that's where we're really adopting the, uh, more technology at this point, um, just because, like I said, just because we have to. Uh, that new break I was talking about—that—that's that, right. It's a look into the future of, of what sheet metal manufacturing is going to look at, look like. Let's talk a little bit about retaining the workers because there are probably other shops who would love to hire mm-hmm. all of the people in Ab- your shop. Absolutely. So how do you keep them at Sweeney? Treat them well. Uh, you treat them well. Um, you keep them involved in the. Uh, you know, in the day-to-day operations and, uh, you know, you're not, um, gone to the days of sitting in the high office and just, you know, flowing down work to the shop and saying, get the work done and punch the clock in the morning, punch the clock in the afternoon and get out of here. Um, it's, it's by keeping them involved, it, it gives them a little more ownership into the process. Uh, and, uh, it's not seen as a burden to them. They like it. They like to, they like when someone comes out and says, Hey, I'm looking at the job package right now. Um, you know, what do you think about this? You know, we don't have the work yet, but I'd really like to get it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's real interesting after you, you know, you'll have a conference. I'll have a conversation with someone on the floor about something like that. You know, I'll meet with a new client, show them some of the work that we're looking at. And uh, you can go out there a day later and there's still buzz, you know, Oh, the, the guys in welding, were looking at that. They love this project. They, we hope we get this, you know, I'd love yeah. to see it. Um, just keeping them involved like that. You know, they're really, puts a little sense of ownership into, into the product for them. And they really, they really like that. Um, they don't get that a lot of other places. A lot of the places are still running the, you know, the nine to five, you know, right. punch the clock, get your work done and, and, and leave type of mentality. Um, that's I, don't, a, I don't know if you've ever done this, but one thing I used to do is if I saw a customer in a news article announcing a new product or something, I would print it out and oh yeah. put it on, Bulletin board, bulletin board full of them. They, yeah. love, they love to they love to see. You know, they, right. We we don't always get to see what we're making. They, right. We, it's a it's a it's a bracket. It's a widget. We don't yeah, know. It, it seems like it such a little thing, but for them, it's not. Now it's not just a part. They're involved in the process of right. making that customer successful. Right. Yeah. So, what ways have you had to change your expectations and your processes because of the changing workforce? So your expectations can't really change from your workforce. I mean, you, you, you expect them, well, you try to keep them involved. You expect them to still come in and, and, and do their job and produce mm-hmm. and do it efficiently and do it time and time again. Um, a lot of the mentality in the, in 
lot of mentality in manufacturing in the 80s and 90s was was that that punch clock mentality where you know you're just here to do a job and get it done mm-hmm. um it takes a lot of the the person out of out of the position so um expectation wise i mean i i wouldn't say expectations change but um adapting to that the more personal model mm-hmm. of the employee employee relationship is um is it's paramount it has to happen they still need to show up on time. They still need to show up on time. Every day. Every day. It would be great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So anything else you want to add on workforce or challenges or any aspect of that? I think, like I said, I think the challenges are going to, are going to be around for a while. Um, I don't think they're going to go away anytime soon, but I do see, yeah, I, I feel that they're going to, they're going to get better at some point. I just don't know how long it's going to take. Um, you know, I, I hate to use the word millennial, but you know, dealing with millennials is is it's a it's a new talent that all of us have had to try to adapt, and it's uh, it's difficult. <laughs> it's difficult. Cause any any tricks that you can share there? Oh, I'm looking for some. You have any? <laughs> well, one that was shared with me is if you, and this probably goes for any employee, but the if you ask them, what do you? feel entitled to at this job and if the answer is any anything at all then you don't hire them Mm. (laughs) (laughs) because entitlement is not part of what you get with employment right so right and that's one thing that i you know i'll touch off that is you know you know, we have job descriptions for all of our employees. Mm-hmm. And when I hired a new employee, they have a job description. They they review it. They agree to it. They sign it. But I'm also clear with them that, you know, your job description, if you look at the last line, is you're an employee of the company. Your job description is to do whatever it, whatever it takes to get our mission done. And it's not because you're trying to be a tough employee no, employer no. or a mean employer. It's It all comes down to we have to be – to work together as a group right. in the mission of serving the customer, making the customer happy. And that means we have to adapt. We can't anticipate in the job description all the things you might have to do to make that happen. The last thing you want to hear is you ask someone, hey, when you're done bending that part, uh, could you empty that trash and have them say, well, that's not my job. Right, right. So we are in the same city here in Nashua where mm-hmm. Rapid started. And your shop was here before mm-hmm. I started Rapid. So I'm curious, what impact did Rapid have on your shop, both positive and negative? And I'm asking this because when I owned the shop, we were quasi-competitors, mm-hmm. so we couldn't have this discussion. But I figured there were some downsides to having us in town, but did it help at all as well? So I'll start with, uh, when, I'll start with the day we heard that Rapid had sold. Okay. <laughs> I'll work backwards from there. Okay. Because uh, I had a lot of conversations, a lot of people when, when we first heard that Rapid had sold. Uh, the big question on everyone's mind was, is Rapid closing? Is Proto Labs going to close down Rapid? Are they just mm-hmm. acquiring Rapid to acquire the competition? You know, what's going to happen to Rapid? And, uh, you know, I'd have some conversations with the customers and say, I'm sure you'd like to see that. You know, no more Rapid in the area. And I said, no. I said, I don't want to see that. Uh, you know, we like having Rapid one exit away. We like them operating over there. And the question, well, why Aren't they your competitor? Why do you like it? Uh, so years back, you know, when Rapid was, you know, when it's in its heyday and getting mm-hmm. real busy in the area and doing a lot of work, 
um, you know, customers have choices. Customers decide where they want to go and, and how they want to spend their money and what kind of product they want to get. And uh, I had a, a lot of customers that would come in, have a lot of conversations with them, and they'd say, you know, oh, your pricing is good, but your delivery is long. I don't want to spend the money for Rapid, but I got to go to Rapid to get the parts done. Mm-hmm. And uh, they'd have, they'd go get the parts done from Rapid. They'd be happy with the parts. They'd get their product out. They'd make their show. They'd make their customer happy. Whatever it was that they needed to do would be done. But they'd always come back. They'd come back for the second order and say, now we have a little more time and, you know, mm-hmm. we, we can, have, we can pay your price. You know, can we get these done? Um, that was our opportunity to, you know, not knocking anything rapid did, but that was our opportunity to shine with customer service quality, whatever it took to make sure that our product, whatever we're delivering to the customer, whether it's customer service or, or the product itself was better than rapid is giving them. And that's where we really, really liked rapid because rapid is bringing a lot of work into the area you know, good, bad, or indifferent, they're bringing a lot of work in. Good. And, uh, you know, when a customer wants to go get that second order and, you know, Rapid is, is maybe too busy or they don't want to spend the price for the quick turn for Rapid, they come to us. And, you know, we were really picking up a lot of a lot of work from Rapid. So that's why when we heard Rapid was sold, they said, aren't you glad they're gone? I said, I hope they're not gone because it, it, it really is it's a big asset to the area. We all need to play in the same sandbox, basically. Mm-hmm. Okay. So working backwards, anything else that you want to add to that or? You know, going back to, you know, when I was talking about how Rapid had that, that, that widget on their website that was doing the quoting, you know, Rapid right. was a great model for us, you know, um, you know, love them or hate them. It was a, it was a successful company. I mean, you did a great job with the company. Um, it, it worked for you. It was a great success. So there's lessons to be learned there. Right. Um, you know, if I'm going to sit back and stick my head in the sand and say, nope, this is how we operate, you know, whatever Rapid did, Rapid did, I'm glad they're successful, but I'm going to struggle the rest of my life. I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to adapt uh, what I can and adopt what Rapid was doing to the extent that, you know, we're comfortable doing. Um, we never wanted to become a Rapid. We never wanted to become a quick turn shop. Um, right. And we're not there. We don't want to go there. We don't want to become the same thing that Rapid and ProtoLab now is doing. Um, we like the product that we do. We like the service that we give our customers and we want to keep doing that. But um, having that model, that local model, I mean, it's easy to look around the country or around the world and see what other shops are doing and see what other you know, industries are doing and say, well, that's great. But um, having a local presence like that is, is great to see. Um, same thing as I go to Fabtech, what's available, right? What's available for equipment? What's available for processes? What's available in this area? What can this area sustain for, for a business model? Um, and that's important to have that, to have that successful business. On the flip side, the way that I looked at it and I positioned it with the company was that we were a tool in their toolbox of suppliers mm-hmm. and that if they needed parts fast, we were the right tool to use. But I understood they had other tools in their toolbox right. and I wasn't upset or offended if they decided to use a different tool to get their sheet metal or machine parts made. It was, we wanted to give them the option and it wasn't to take business away from local shops. Right. I say local here in Nashville, but it could be in LA or right, anywhere right, else. Right. In the there is a, there's different types of shops for different needs within the customer. And the, 
optionality makes the manufacturing base, I think, stronger in the U.S. Mm-hmm. because it doesn't – one of the beliefs I had is at Rapid was that we had to be as frictionless as a business as possible. And I think in general, custom manufacturing in the U.S. wants to be as frictionless as custom manufacturers as right. possible because that means we don't force our customers – the people who are building the products to go overseas and look for other suppliers. And that, you know, <clears throat> that's a, that's a good point because, you know, um, you know, manufacturing, as you know, it's a very cloak and dagger industry. Mm-hmm. You know, no one wants anyone to know what they're doing. They right. don't want to know what technologies they're using. They don't want right. to know how, how they're getting their product out. Um, I wish it wasn't that way, but you know, unfortunately it is that way right now. It's, it's very, it, everything's very, you know, you keep your cards very close to your chest. You don't want to let anyone else know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that you know working together with manufacturers is, is a. I think it's a big collaboration that that, as it happens, it's great. Um, you know, I've had more than uh, tons of customers that have t- sat me down and told me, like, "Listen, we don't want to give you all. We're not going to give you all of our work." Right. And the next thing I say to them is, "I don't want all of your work. I want you to be using multiple suppliers. I want you to use multiple manufacturers. I want you to use my competition." And you know, people say that might be crazy, but you know, that gives me the chance to, um, you know, sell what we sell. We're selling customer service. We're mm-hmm. selling customer service and quality parts. So if I'm up against, you know, XYZ company and you know, that my parts are coming in the same time, their parts are coming in. Um, maybe my delivery's on time. Maybe my quality's better. Maybe it's just the fact that I'm picking up the phone and talking to them and, and treating them like a customer mm-hmm. that sits and resonates well with the customer. Um, we're selling that. That's what we're selling. Um, I'll sit down with a customer and explain to them, you know, they say your pricing is a little high. And I say, that's good. You know, I don't want to be the lowest guy and I don't want to be the highest guy. I want to be right in the middle mm-hmm. um, because that's what we're selling. We're selling more than just a part. We're selling the customer experience and that, that's what's carried us 30 years, to be honest with you. Yeah. Well, from my standpoint, I appreciate you being willing to be open and sharing today mm-hmm. and not keeping it close to the vest <laughs> because that nugget on the Amada HG press break, I'm sure Amada appreciates the plug. Sure they do. But uh, that, that, that's huge. I was not aware it was that automated. It would take the setups down. So we could probably keep going on for a while, but I think this is a good place to stop. Thanks for coming in today and sharing your story and experience with the audience. I, again, I really like the, examples you showed us of a growth mindset, your continuous investment in the new equipment and technology, and your willingness to change your mind as shown in our lead time discussion. Mm-hmm. The situation changes, you change your mind. Right. And that is the part of a growth mindset. And mindset's so critical to where a company goes and the owner leads the charge. So any last comments? No, not really. I mean, it's been a good conversation. I mean, uh, no, no, not really. Great. So if someone wants to follow up with you and connect with Sweeney Metal, what's the best way to do so? Well, the best way is the old-fashioned telephone. I'm trying to pick up the phone. Uh, but uh, you can find all our information online at www.sweeneymetal.com. Um, you can submit a request for quote online right there, and we'll get it right through the paperless platform, and we'll get that out to you. You can see a little more about what we're about. You can see some of our equipment and uh, hear about some of our uh, past experiences. Somebody wants to email you. What's your email? My direct email is csweeney at sweeneymetal.com. And Sweeney is 
M-E-T-A, I'm sorry, S-W-E-E-N-E-Y, and it's metal, M-E-T-A-L. Okay, just want to make sure that people know how to spell Sweeney. So listeners, please check out the show notes on our website, thejobshopshow.com. I would welcome any feedback and comments. And if you have a suggestion for a topic or a particular guest on the show, please let us know. Simply use the contact click at thejobshopshow.com in the upper right. We appreciate you tuning in, and let's keep those spindles turning and those press brakes. Have a great day.